You've heard of BetaShares. You've probably seen the logo on our podcast. You might even be among their 1 million investors. So you can imagine that I'm delighted to say BetaShares is the official ETF partner of the Australian Finance Podcast. With nearly 100 exchange-traded funds, you can go to betashares.com.au and immerse yourself in ETFs and unique insights covering all of the sectors, themes, core and satellite positions you could want. Think cybersecurity through the Hack ETF, robotics and AI with the RBTZ ETF, and uranium with the URNM ETF. The list goes on. To explore the BetaShares ETF range, visit betashares.com.au, read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website, and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. Is there a Spotify wrapped for investing? If you want to invest in shares or ETFs, our friends at Perla are more than one step ahead of the curve. On average, people who use Perla invest $1,750 every month. That's what we want to see, proper dollar cost averaging. With automated investing tools making your life simple, Perla investors have well and truly mastered the art of investing small bits lots of times. So if you're ready to start growing your net worth in 2024, follow the link in your Spotify or Apple podcast player right now to discover how you can get started today. Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. Kate Campbell, welcome to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. Thanks, Owen. And uh, I'm attempting to record this episode today, so we'll see what happens. I'm not that familiar with Zoom Record. Yeah, so we're recording this in video and audio, as we've been doing a lot lately, which is really cool. Hmm. But we are are working remote. Um, This is my first day back in the office in about two months. Um, We're not actually, like, we're permitted to work in the office, but as you know, but I think like we're in here just for a day and it's been so long since I've been in here. I even forgot to bring in my computer. <laughs> like it, it's, it's crazy. And you're at home, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Owen's testing out the iPad for recording. So we'll see how it goes. <laughs> yeah. So if you're on YouTube watching this, um, forgive us, please. Um, mm. So we've got a and a episode today, which is cool because we are bringing these back and we're bringing them back in action. They're going to be really cool. Um, We've got a few topics to get to. We're going to talk about super. We're going to talk about dollar cost averaging. We're going to talk about spaceship, which is a really popular thing with millennials, it seems. Um, but before we get to all that, as usual, Kate, this podcast and our answers to questions contain general financial advice only, if there is any advice at all. Um, sometimes it's just information. So what that means is the advice doesn't apply to you or our listeners um, in particular. So if you want that type of advice, you need to go see a financial planner and they'll take into account all of your needs, goals, and objectives. Obviously, we're also going to talk about investment products like Spaceship, for example. So we could say whatever we want about that, but what's really important for you to do is go away and read the product disclosure statement or PDS. That's an essential document you should read before you invest. It's just that simple. Cool. Now that we've done the fun part, Kate, let's get to the boring (laughs) bits, which are the questions. So the first question this month, uh, well, actually, we're going to not start with a question. You've thrown something in the show notes here. We've got what's been happening in the world of finance. So I've got something that I haven't told you about. 
what's the thing that you want to share? Yeah, so I've been uh, watching the the Mayfair scandal unfold um, where it was a fund manager that pretty much said they're like a term deposit, whereas they were not a term deposit at all. And this has been going on for a few years now, but ASIC have finally uh, taken control and told them to wind up the fund. And they've actually put a bit of research out there, um, essentially warning consumers that a lot of funds aren't true to label. Um, mm. I, I think they were... Yeah, they had some stats. I'll put the article in the show notes, which is quite interesting. But often they found from their research, some funds said they were cash funds or low risk or conservative or capital Mm. guaranteed fund when they didn't actually have those assets underneath. And they might have been investing in an island, for example, Mm -hmm. something like that. Yeah. And we've all heard of the Fire Music Festival and how that worked out. So um, basically... This is a fund, I think we've talked about it on the show before, where it was kind of marketed to retirees, as mm. far as I could tell. And it would buy Google search terms or advertising like term deposit or like investment, like yield, those types of things. But it was what was actually inside the fund once these people, these I would say vulnerable people actually invested, was not that. So mm. um, kind of scary. And it's fair enough that ASIC would come out with that. My one, and kind of the thing, I guess, if we're just bringing this up for the last month, is just this idea of something called modern monetary theory or MMT. Mm. I'm not one, even though I'm a finance guy, I don't pay much, if any, attention to what's going on in the economy other than like knowing like the big you know, house prices, you know, company profits, that type of thing. But this um, theory is kind of the new world order and the way we do things. And I think it has a chance to really change the world. So we've done a separate podcast on that. We've done an educational video on that. It's called MMT. Um, it's kind of blown up in finance circles. So that's something that um, maybe we'll cover, cover off in a future episode if it starts to actually mm. change the world. But, um, yeah, that's really all that's exciting. There's, there's kind of like two really geeky things, Kate. Like it goes to show like what we get excited about here at the, the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I just It comes down to uh, doing your own research and uh, making sure you have a look under the hood. Yeah, totally. So the, the first um, question, I guess, is... Um, just on stock splits and what actually happens. So um, we, had a, we, we had a really good example. We had two really good examples. I actually was um, working on my house the other day, um, hooray, and I, I saw in there a message from a mate who said, hey, what happened to Tesla stock? Do you think it will bounce back? It's down like 70%. And then I remembered that Tesla had actually split its stock. So what a stock split is, is imagine that, um, imagine that you have a, a pizza and a pizza normally costs you 20 bucks. If you cut it in two slices, it's ten dollars each, right? Um, if you cut that slice into four, if you cut that pizza into four slices, they're five dollars each, right? It's still the same pizza, and even if you have two slices of the five dollar slices versus one slice of the ten dollar slice, it's still the same amount of shares or ownership that you have. And so that's basically all a stock split is. They're saying, you know, Apple's another really good example of a company that I own shares in. I bought shares when they were say, let's say a hundred dollars around figures. Recently, they did a four-for-one stock split. And what that means is that for every one share that I previously owned, now I've got four. But obviously, they're not four at the same price as I paid for them. They're four at the one quarter of the price. And so that's basically a stock split. And we've seen that happen recently. And the reason why companies do this, Kate, is so that they can um, appeal to more investors. It sounds Mm -hmm. silly, right? But when a company has a smaller share price, particularly in the US, it actually makes it easier to buy and sell. Like if you have $500... For example, you can't buy Google because it's like $1,300 US a share. Mm. So that's why you get these fractional platforms and whatever. 
Berkshire Hathaway is like $250,000 US or the last time I checked it. So you don't have enough money to do that. So companies often do stock splits, which is where they break it up. Mm. Have I missed anything there? I think, uh, and one of the questions following that was, how does that affect the ETF? So if you have an ETF with Apple shares or Tesla shares in it, and I guess based on the market cap, it's probably quite a large bit of that ETF. Does that, would that change the, the holding you have in that ETF? No. So if you had, like, a, let's have some really good examples, um, like the, the big Vanguard US total stock market ETF, or if you had the NASDAQ 100 from the Beta Shares ETF, both really popular ETFs, or all of those S&P 500 or IVV ETF. So if you have those ETFs and say Apple was, say, 6% of that ETF, it's still 6% after the stock split. Mm-hmm. Because um, the, the, what happens is, as I said, it's still the same pizza. If you like, it's Apple is still the same Apple. <laughs> it's just broken up differently. So the ETF might have held, say, a million shares, right? Just round figures, a million shares. Now they've got 4 million shares, but they're priced at one quarter of the amount. So it's the same thing. There is one um, interesting bit here is that it actually depends um, on the different, what we call index. So if you have an ETF that follows the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ 100, it shouldn't be affected. But if you have an ETF that follows the Dow Jones, which only has 30 companies, the way that index is actually calculated is a little bit different because it depends on the share price. It's one of the only um, really popular stock market in indices or indexes that you look at that actually use share price when it weighs up how much of a share should go in. So Apple actually had, was adjust, they had to adjust the Dow Jones index for Apple because it was so big. But um, that's the only time when it can get a bit funny. If you own the NASDAQ 100 or you own the S&P 500 ETF, no impact whatsoever. Mm, and I think that's a, it's always a good reminder to sort of keep an eye on your holdings if you are investing in individual shares in Australia because if there's a stock split or a share consolidation yeah. and if you don't log into your account for a few months and suddenly you might be surprised by either seeing a larger or a lower amount of shares if they've gone through that. Yeah, so some of the, this is the thing about the psychology of share prices. You and I know the share prices actually mean nothing, right? Like it doesn't actually mean anything, but companies and some stock exchanges actually think it's a big deal. For example, mm. there are some stock exchanges where they don't let companies have a share price below $5 or $2 or even in a sense, because it's like a sign that that stock exchange might be dealing in dodgy small stocks. Mm. So what the companies will do is they'll have a higher share price than they not, might normally. Whereas in Australia, we're happy to have 10 cents and 5 cents for share prices. Um, in the US, they might not be happy with that. So mm. It really doesn't matter. Obviously, as you're an investor, you've got to focus on the change. And if you wake up one day and you find that your company's down 75%, like my mate did with Tesla, just remember that there might be a stock split or something like that. It might not be the end of the world. So just Mm. look into it. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Next question, Kate. What have we got? All right. I thought this one would be quite interesting to you at the moment, given you've just purchased your first home. But one of the questions Mm -hmm. we got was, would you recommend while renting to continue to save to reach that 2020? 20% 20% deposit, which is pretty common in Australia to avoid lenders' mortgage insurance, or would it be better to buy with a 10 to 15% deposit to save on rent and just have to pay for the LMI, the lenders' mortgage yeah. insurance? So this is um, so lenders' and mortgage insurance is something that covers the bank in case you default on your mortgage mm-hmm. repayments. And so as most people will know, you need if let's say it's a million dollar house, let's say you're a high roller like, like Kate over here, right? Uh, so you, you, you want to go and buy a million dollar house. I'm just joking, Kate. I don't think you're in the market for a million dollar home. But let's say you have a million dollar house and you want 
to buy that and you don't want to pay LMI, you would have to save $200,000 plus your stamp duty costs. So like your cost to actually get into the house. And so most people wouldn't have that for their first home. So then they have to cop something called LMI. And LMI is an insurance the bank tells you to get so that if you can't meet the repayments, um, they, the insurance should pay out and they are protected. You would still be liable if it was a shortfall, but that's mm. basically how it works. Yeah, it's and quite so, interesting because it's an insurance that doesn't actually help you. It's, it's insurance you're paying purely to protect the bank. And that's why I always said, and I had this big beef with it, and people kind of called me out on this. Mm. I always said that it's the most expensive thing you should never have to pay, right? Like I think if I recall a, you saying that earlier last year. <laughs> yeah. You're pretty hey, firm on that one. Yeah, and I, haven't, so I still haven't paid LMI because we did something which I also kind of not stressed against, but just kind of reminded people to consider, which is use mm. a guarantor. So, um, you know, there are many different moving parts to this, but I guess the, the crux of this question is, should I keep renting um, and, or just buy a house, pay the LMI? LMI can be pretty expensive. For those of you who don't know, let's say it's five or $600,000. I don't have the exact figures at the top of my head, but it might be 15 grand. So it's a lot of money, right? It's a lot of money to pay. And if it goes on top of your loan, so it's something that you pay off. But if you can avoid it, don't pay it. But at the same time, right, you might be thinking, well, hey, Owen, if I'm only paying 3% or 4% on my interest rate for my mortgage, couldn't I just invest that money? Like if I had the $200,000 in this example, couldn't I invest that money for a better return? Um, maybe um, that's a consideration people make as well. Because all they think, you know, I'm going to buy a $500,000 house. I've got 50 grand or 100 grand put aside. Wouldn't that be better to take a 100% loan, cop the LMI, and then put the 100 grand into the property to try and increase the value of it over time? And those are all fair and reasonable questions. And another counterpoint is, well, you know, I've, the longer I'm out of the market, the longer it has to get away from me. So if I put my, if I just take the LMI because I don't have the deposit, at least I'm in the market. And mm-hmm. then I can benefit if share price, if, if that property prices go up. So, and those are all fair and reasonable points. And my, my only, I guess, counterpoint would be, my only guess stands one way or the other is just make sure that serviceability of the loan is completely out of the question. So mm. you are more than comfortable borrowing at that amount um, if it's 100%. I mean, I really don't like the idea of LMI. If you can use a guarantor, you might be able to get around, around it. In Victoria, and I know in some other states, they have um, a, a program which only a few banks participate in might be relevant to you, Kate, if it's below $600,000 in certain suburbs that you're buying, the government will actually step in and help you come up with a deposit or at least mean that you don't have to get LMI. So they effectively provide insurance for first home buyers. So that's something that we can put in the show notes and it's something I actively considered. It turns Mm. out that I paid more than 600, but (laughs) that's a way around it too. That might save you 15 grand just by going and buying under $600,000 in your suburb. And, um, and following all those rules. But a good mortgage broker can help you out with that. Mm. Before you go and do that, make sure you look at the show notes. We'll put a link in just to see if you're eligible for this um, first home uh, scheme. Kate, are you, are you actually looking to buy a property or is that kind of, you said to me I think a few I weeks got, ago. I think because we were talking about property a lot for a few months when you were looking, I got sort of all caught up in the momentum. Um, but now <laughs> it's sort of settled down and I'm like, oh, maybe that's not something I want to do right now. I, yeah. I think it's so easy with property to get caught up in the excitement, especially if people around you are looking to buy a property or buying their first home. It just, yeah, it's that, it's that Australian dream. You just can get really caught up in the moment. And now 
now it's been a few months later and I'm just going, hmm, I'm not as excited about the idea right now for myself. Yeah, yeah fair enough. And, you, you know, you, you, you're doing a bit of study and all that on the side. So, um, yeah, it's fair enough. And it's a big commitment. So, yeah, it's one of those things where I never had an issue with renting. Some people do think there's like stigma attached to it. I don't really mm. care about that because I knew I was doing something else with my money. So I wouldn't say, I would say to people, don't be in a rush. Take your time. Make sure it's right for you. Property will always be there. You can invest in other ways. Okay, next question, Kate. I'm going to put you on the spot. I don't know if you know much about this because I don't think it's something that you do actively. But no. what on earth is short selling and how does it work? Maybe if you answer the, the, what is it and then I'll answer how it works. Yes. Yeah, so I was going to hopefully hope you would answer this question. <laughs> but um, uh, from from my sort of perspective, what I've seen is that you're betting against the share price. So yep. I think the, it's been in the news a lot with Tesla recently. There's been a, a whole lot of people thinking that Tesla is going to fall in value. So they're, um, I don't know if it's through contracts for difference or something like that. Yeah. So there's multiple ways you can do it, right? So shorting is for the most part, all you really need to remember is that shorting, there's two things you need to remember. Shorting is betting against it could be a share price, but it could be anything. Mm. It's betting against the value of something. So you think that something's going to fall, right? That's shorting. The other thing that you need to remember is that it's very high risk. So I don't short shares um, and I never would do that publicly because it is so high risk mm. and it requires typically. So the thing about shorting is, right, when you're a long-term investor, you can buy shares and you can just hold on to them. Like if you find a good company, you can just hold on to it. Or if you invest in an ETF or an index fund, just buy it and let it go, right? But if you're shorting, there's two things you have to be right on. First, you have to be right that the share is going to fall. And second, you have to be right that it's going to fall soon, which is why when Tesla's blowing up and all these people are thinking, oh, this is a great investment, the shorters are coming out and saying, it's a terrible investment. The reason why they come out publicly and say that is because they want the share price to go down. Mm. so they have an interest in this right and the reason why they want the share price to go down so quickly is because it costs them money for every single day that the short position is held so you know when like you've got etfs when i've got maybe that's a bad example you've got shares i've got shares when you own shares there's no one charging you interest right you just have the money in the account and mm. it just grows right with shorting the shorters actually pay interest because the way it works, and this is how simple it is, the way it works is I'm a short seller and Kate, you've got some shares, right? I say to you, Kate, I'm going to borrow those shares from you and I'm going to pay you interest, right? So I'm going to pay you 5% interest annually and then when I give them back to you, um, I'll give you your interest and the shares back, right? And you say, okay, well, that's fine. I was going to hold the shares anyway. You seem pretty credible. Maybe you probably wouldn't think that, but you would say, you, you know, I've got the shares anyway and I'm going to get 5% interest from you. So you think, well, even if my shares fall, Owen's paying me 5% interest. Mm. So I've, already, I've got the interest and even if the shares fall, I, I get them back anyway because I was going to hold on to them. Now what I do, and this is where I make money, I take the shares from you promising to pay you 5%, but then I go and sell the shares in my brokerage account. And you're like, what? You sold my shares? Or like someone listening to this is like, wait, you just sold Kate's shares. And I'm like, yeah, I've made a guarantee to her that I'm going to ret return them to her. Mm. So she doesn't know and she doesn't care because she gets a 5% and she's going to get the shares back sometime in the future. So then I sell the shares. Let's say I sell them for $100. Right? 
right? And you've given me one share, just for round figures, one share at $100. I've gone and sold it. Now let's imagine that the shares, the share price in the next two weeks um, have fallen to $50, right? So now the share that you owned once upon a time was 100, now it's 50. I think, hey, that's pretty good. My short selling has been good. I'm going to go buy the shares in my brokerage account, buy that one share back at $50 and I hand it back to you and I say, Kate, here's your share that I owe you. Mm. And you're like, okay, it sucks, but my share's down. Owen's delivered on his promise. So he's given me the share back for $50. It's at, no, it's currently at $50 mm. and he's given me 5% interest. Let's for round figures. And that's $55 in your pocket, like $55 of value. For me though, think about what happened for me. I sold it at $100 and then I've given you 55 back. Mm. So that means that I get to collect the 45, right? Now, some of the math whizzes that are listening to this are probably thinking two things. They're probably thinking, okay, Owen, what happens if it goes to zero? Well, if it goes to zero, that means I've made all $100 less the interest that I pay you. Mm. I could hand you back empty share certificates and you would pro- that's probably the way it would go. I'd hand you back empty share certificates that uh, yours would be worth zero, but at least you get the 5% interest. For me, I've made 100% on my money. You know, I've made 100% return. It's gone from 100 to zero, right? But then the other thing that people are probably thinking is, okay, well, you can make a maximum of 100%. So if the share price is 100 and goes to zero, that's 100% return. Mm. But let's imagine it goes the other way, Kate. Let's imagine it goes to $200. Mm-hmm. I'm paying you 5% interest or $5. I'm also having to buy back a share for double what I sold it for. So that means I lose $100 plus the $5, it's $105. But let's imagine it goes to $300. Now I owe you $200 plus the $5. So mm. I'm out of pocket in a massive way. Now what happens here is my maximum return that I can earn from short selling at any one time is $100, no matter what the share price is. I can mm. only earn, well not $100, 100%. I can only earn 100% less the interest that I pay you, right? So it's not and even... probably the, feel, the fees to actually do this whole thing in the first At place. <laughs> the fees to do it too, right? But I can lose a lot more than 100%. Mm. So I can gain 100%, but I can lose a lot more than 100%. Now, let's think about this. If you own shares, it's exactly the opposite. Mm. You can lose 100%, but you can make unlimited amounts. And that's the secret of why long-term investing works and short selling, in my opinion, is very, very difficult and should only be done by experts. Hmm. And it's because it's skewed against you. The risk versus return in short selling is skewed against you. But the risk versus return for long-term investing, that's fine and it works for you. Now, you mentioned some things there, Kate. You said CFDs at the beginning of my rant and we've talked about CFDs in the past. They're pretty much certificates for wealth destruction. So if you, like, I don't think, ASIC, we, we did that report during COVID, remember? Mm. Like different trading websites talk about CFDs because they love to sell them to people who have no idea what's going on. Yeah. They are so risky, so dangerous and should only be for experts. ASIC even wanted to call them gambling, not investing. So uh, keep that in mind. That's my yeah. rant. That's your song. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember listening to a really interesting uh, interview by sort of an international, one of the largest short sellers, Mark Cahodes, um, yeah. earlier this year. So I'll put that in the show notes as well because I think that's quite an interesting. He, yeah. He's certainly someone who's been doing it for a long time. 
and he spends 24 seven doing his research and preparing. So, um, I guess if you want to see what it takes, um, he's someone to listen to. So that what I just described to you, and there's so many good investors like that. Mark's really good. There's some really good Australian ones. Mm-hmm. So what I, what I just described to you is pure short selling, the, what everyone refers to. But there are other ways to benefit from things falling in value. I won't go into them in detail, but there are options. There are things called warrants. There are all these different strategies to benefit from things falling in value. And definitely pure short selling or CFDs are the riskiest by far in my opinion. And then you come up to using options in a professional way. We can't really use them here in Australia, but in the US they do them pretty well. Mm, so but definitely a lot more limited in what we can do with Australian stocks. Absolutely. Yeah. So next question, Kate, good one. Very good Awesome. One. Uh, so the next question uh, is from a listener. Hello, afternoon. Love the podcast. Although I'm not ready, uh, I am interested in how to go about setting up financial investments for kids one day as a parent i'd like to dollar cost average into exchange traded funds for my eventual children so someone's planning a long way ahead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wonder yep. what way is best so i think the first thing i'd start with was is what are your goals and why are you investing for the kids because some people want to put money aside for school fees um, maybe mm-hmm. you, if you're putting money for school fees or private school fees that's going to look very different than i want to put money aside to give them a house deposit when they're 30 years old um, yep. A completely different time frame, different amounts of money. You might have longer term. I mean, some people even want to like put money aside so they can give their kids a present when they're 50 years old or something like mm. that. So I guess it's starting with what do you want to use the money for for these future kids? Uh, maybe the money might even be so you've got, um, you can take a year off when your kids are born. So that's a different time frame again. And maybe you'd want to focus on um, just building up a year's emergency fund or something like that. Yep. But Totally. A kid fund. Yep. Yeah, totally. I was going to say, like, the, the reason that you're asking these things is because when you, not only is it time frame, there are some actual, so some financial advisors will be able to help you with this. Mm. There are some actual products, we call them products in finance, that might actually suit different things like education over, mm. say, a house deposit. So those are different things for you to consider too, as well as, you know, we've got like investment properties for negative gearing, mm. trusts and all that sort of stuff. That's a really good way to start. Well, what else would you look at? Yeah, absolutely. So once you sort of figure out, maybe you want to save for two different things. Maybe you want to save for when a year's living expenses for when they're born and then you want to save for school fees once they're 13 or something like that. So have a look at, once you've worked out the different sort of scenarios, have a look at some different compounding scenarios. So look at the Money Smart Compound Interest Calculator. That's one of our favourite tools over here. Yeah, yes, totally. Um, and, and see what, just spend half an hour plugging in numbers um, and see what kind of money you might need to put aside if you, if you say, want $10,000 for when your kid's born how, and you think mm, that's maybe five years away, how much do you want to put aside each month into a, a special account? Um, and that's something good. Otherwise, like if you wanted to give them a house deposit when they're 25, then you've got a lot longer to save, invest and put money aside for. So, yeah, have a play around with that calculator and see if it's something that you can do. Mm, absolutely. I think it's a, yeah, it's the best calculator. Uh, we tried to create one ourselves. It's good, but it's not as good as the money smart mm. one. I've got to be honest. So hopefully we can get a developer on board and revamp those. But the, 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 what's really important about this, um, and I think the question that's always so ambiguous for a lot of people is tax. Mm. So if I'm investing for my children, how do I structure it so that, you know, tax isn't an issue? 
So a few years ago, um, it was possible, when I say a few years ago, quite a few years ago now, it was possible that when you had, say, a business or something like that, you could actually split incomes with kids. Um, and so they would pay, you know, tax up to the tax-free threshold mm. and then they would only start paying tax after that amount. And, and that income splitting is something that changed the rules in a lot of ways because it meant that people could no longer just simply give money to their kids in their kids' bank account as a way to get money to themselves without paying tax. So the really important one here, and there's an article on this on the Market Index website, which we'll put in the show notes, so Market Index, and it's buying shares for kids. And it's a really good one. And basically it comes down to speaking with your accountant and knowing who, whose name those shares are held in. Mm. Because there's a few different methods here. Um, and this is where it gets confusing. It's like a rat race for people. Like, oh, my financial advisor can give me advice on insurance bonds, but my tax accountant can only give me advice on tax and putting my tax file number in certain places. But he won't tell me if it can go in a share brokerage account. Like, this is where it gets so messy for people. But I'd go, I'd go and check out that market index article because it can actually come down to where you put your tax file number or whose name of the shares held in. Mm. Because yeah. it, might be, it might be a taxable event when you sell shares or you might, be able to just, you might even on the 18th birthday want to give them the shares or want to give them the ETFs. Um, and it, you really shouldn't have to, in my opinion, you shouldn't have to pay tax if you put that money aside for your kids and you pay income tax as you go. But that's the, the reality is if you don't do it right, you might end up paying tax based on the investments, even if they mm. just transfer to their, his or her, your children's name. Okay. So Vanguard also has a really good, um, really good resources on this too. Mm, and I think sometimes people can overcomplicate it because they really want to put the, the shares or the, the money in their kid's individual name. And sometimes it can be simpler just to put it in a separate account in your own name and just, um, I don't know, record it in a spreadsheet as a separate line item or something like that. Um, yeah. Just sort of like name it virtually, not a not have it legally recorded because it can get really complicated and not every company is willing to um, set up accounts with parent as trustee for minor and things like that. So um, yeah, definitely have a look. Don't try and overcomplicate it because it could be get you into a messy tax scenario, but I guess your different options. uh, I think we've discussed in the past, but there's like insurance slash education bonds that you can get. There's a couple of companies that do that, but I think we looked in the past, the fees are quite high. Yeah, you've got to be really careful. Um, really, really careful. Rules. Yeah, there's a lot of rules. And typically, just as a general overview of insurance or education bonds, um, you're going to pay higher fees. It's typically for like people that have a higher income, but also the maximum benefits from insurance bonds from a tax perspective, my understanding is it's after 10 years. Mm-hmm. So you've got to hold them for quite a long time before... Um, you know, things actually start to fall your way. And that can mean, um, you know, the rules might change between now and then. You know, we've mm-hmm. seen super rules change how many times in the last two years? So you've got to read the PDS. You've got to understand the risks. And that's where a financial advisor is really important before getting involved with those. Mm. And then your, your other options are maybe buying individual shares directly, buying ETFs directly, or using a robo-advisor. Um, or even just putting the money aside in a bank account. If you're thinking you might want it um, to take maternity, paternity leave for a a longer period than maybe your workplace will cover, maybe just, and you think that's going to happen the next few years, maybe just put that money aside in a bank account so there's sort of a no risk on the line. 
yeah, another option kind of in between those two, between cash and between investing K would be to have an offset account. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that if it doesn't got actually, a property. if you've got a property, it doesn't yeah. actually earn you interest, but it actually saves you on your mortgage. So you're paying less in your mortgage, but if you worked out in after tax dollars, so if you adjusted the tax, chances are the return on putting it in your offset account is theoretically, I'm using air quotes for those people that are watching, they're not watching the video. Theoretically, it's better. Mm-hmm. So, um, that's something to consider too. But you know what? I'm going to give you a real life example. I have a younger sister. I'm about crunches and numbers in his head, 19 years older than her. So she is quite a bit younger than me. Um, and I initially had a program set up where I had a Vanguard ETF and I had it in my own name and I just wanted to just dollar cost average every birthday. I think it was 500 bucks because that's the minimum for an ETF, right? Every birthday of hers was 500 bucks. And I chose an ETF that was really high risk because um, she had, I didn't want to give it to her to her 21st. So that's like 20 years. So I could afford to take the risk. And the other thing I wanted to do was find an ETF that didn't actively trade shares. So it was mm-hmm. just like a really boring vanilla shares ETF um, because that results in lower turnover inside the portfolio. Something we haven't talked about before, but what it means is lower taxes. Mm-hmm. So that's what I went with. But that's just a, there's no rhyme or reason to that. That's just kind of, um, I guess, from from my personal preference. Yeah. And I guess the last thing with this is if you can automate this, especially if you're going to be investing over a 20 or 30 year time frame and you're putting away 50, a hundred dollars a month. uh, If you can automate either like a direct debit into a certain bank account or um, some way to, there's a few platforms now where you can actually automate the purchase of shares and ETFs. So have a look at that. Um, It makes it a lot easier if you're doing something over a long time. I mean, I've had one, automated um investment mm. set up for the last two and a half years now and it's just sort of slowly happened in the background and i i check in with it maybe twice a year um when sort of end of year to and at tax time and it just sort of has been slowly building away for a few years and that that makes it so much easier yeah we were saying the other day uh for the listeners we were saying the other day on slack that we all really want to hear kate's investing strategy even though we we know you're not the expert and whatever you call yourself like it's you know, I think just the way you automate your finances is really cool. So we'll, we'll cover that in a future episode. Next question um, is really cool. So um, it's addressed to you. So maybe I'll, I'll let you uh, talk about it. Yeah, awesome. So this question was, hi, Kate, love the podcast and super grateful to Owen and you being following you both since the start, which is pretty awesome. Yep. Um, and it keeps me motivated and informed. I have a question with regards to this investing platform I came across called Spaceship Voyager. Um, so that's an app that you can download and invest sort of $5 on a weekly basis or it's similar to Raise as well. I think we've talked about that a few times in the past. Mm. Um, it's a mutual fund that seems to have very competitive price, uh, less than e- ETFs, but for some reason I can't find um, much information out there on the risks. So they've actually put three questions to us. Uh, Firstly, what our thoughts are. So we could address that one first. Yeah. So to be honest with you, I don't know a great deal about it. Um, So I'm probably not the person to speak about Spaceship Voyager. I have no no dog in this fight. I just don't know much about it. Um, Mm -hmm. I should have done a bit more research beforehand, but I tend to stick to uh, traditional fund managers um, and typically those that I can speak to up front. Yeah. So maybe you can maybe you can fill in um, listeners on what it actually does. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think I tested it out a little bit when it launched, um, 
but essentially you can, I think they have two different um, funds that you can invest in. So they've used uh, ETFs and I think one of theirs is there, so they've got a hand-picked fund and then they've got an ETF fund. Um, but you can have a look on the website and I think it was really low fees, but it is sort of a pooled asset. So you're putting your money in and everyone's money is in the same pool as well. So um, it's different to when you buy an exchange traded fund or a share with your own holder identification number through a brokerage site where you have legal ownership. And if anything happens, you can actually move that share to somewhere else. If you want to take your money out of Spaceship, you have to uh, sell um, and then they pay it out to you. So there's a little bit less control is, there. Is that the same, but is that the same as most managed funds? You know, when you mm. buy unit, you get units, is that the same thing that we're talking about? Yeah, I, I'd say it's a simple the similar structure to a traditional managed fund as well. It's just uh, dressed up with a really nice app and automated. So you can say, I want $5 every um, month or every week to go from my bank account straight into there. And they buy units on your behalf into this fund. Okay. I'll tell you what, Kate, I'm going to, I was really slack. I didn't actually, I thought this was like Kate's question. So I didn't do as much research as I should have. I reckon we address this again next month and next month I'll come back and I'll dig through all those PDSs for people and we can have a, a really good conversation about that aspect of it, about the fees and about the risks. Mm. But there are two, two or three things that you did reach out to them directly to discuss. So I'll let you fire away with those. Yeah. So the second question was what happens to your money in the rare event that spaceship goes broke as you buy units, not the underlying shares. And that's so that's how most managed funds work. You get, you apply and you get given units in the fund and then you can redeem those units, but it's a, usually a manual process. So for typical fund managers, you'll fill in a form, you'll sign it, you'll send it off saying, I want to redeem a thousand units or a thousand dollars. And then they'll do that and send the money to you. And it usually takes sort of three to five business days because they have to sell the assets and wait for that to settle because they don't always have the cash on hand. Yep. Um, so for Spaceship, I actually um, sent them a message. So they said, um, while this information isn't available on our website, because I firstly asked where it was, um, I can tell you that in the unlikely event that something does happen, the Spaceship Voyager Managed Fund could be transferred to another responsible entity or investments could be sold down and your money returned to you. In other words, Spaceship would not use your money to pay off any debt obligations the company has. So that was their response. Which is very normal. So mm. for those of you who don't know, that's a very normal response and very normal structure because, um, you know, technically the fund, if it's regulated, of course, should be investing in the things that it says it's investing in. Mm. So even if the company in between you and the investments, i.e. spaceship, goes broke, you should still have a claim on the investments actually inside it. And so, you know, we talked about it at the top of the show, the scandal with being true to label, you know, in the, in the unlikely event that like a Mayfair thing happens, ASIC or someone would take control of those assets and distribute them back to you. It might be a long time. Like I've heard stories of some managed funds, particularly like property investors being caught out and having their money frozen for years. Mm. But this is, this seems like a very normal situation to me. Yeah, like if it had to happen, it wouldn't happen instantly. So it could take a bit longer to get your money out. Mm. Um, um, and then the other question I asked is who was their uh, external custodian? So the usually with managed funds, Spaceship doesn't have 
your money sitting in their personal bank account so they can't just um, do whatever they want with the money. They use, uh, managed funds usually use an external custodian, so the money sits with the custodian. So a lot of large international companies like HSBC and Citibank are custodian companies. Uh, in particular, Spaceship um, said they've appointed Interactive Brokers Australia as their external custodian. So your money when you invest with Spaceship isn't in their bank account, it's with uh, Interactive Brokers and then Spaceship on a daily basis will be telling Interactive Brokers buy, sell this unit. So Spaceship will give Interactive Brokers the instructions on what to do, what to redeem. And what a lot of people don't know this, like even people that are like me that are investors but don't know exactly what happens behind the scenes is that most of the time the company that you think you're giving the money to is not the company at all that touches mm-hmm. it. There's normally a separate entity and that's good because a separate entity usually just does one thing and one thing only and that's just to manage money. Mm-hmm. So that's all they do. They don't, tell, they don't direct where it goes other than just to put it in separate accounts or whatever. Their job is effectively just to hold on to it. And so the invest, investment manager in this case, like Spaceship, it could be any of the fund managers we've spoken to, they actually are the ones that say, hey, we're going to invest in this. Mr. Mr. or Mrs. Custodian, can you please transfer? We're going to do this. We're going to do that. These are the units that need to go back to our investors. All those different things. Mm-hmm. So that's a, re- that's a really good thing. Okay, we've got two more questions. Um, first one is um, a superannuation question. Um, that was a really good question, by the way. So keep those ones coming through. We'll talk about Spaceship more as time goes on. Um, my question is regarding super. I'm 33 years old and currently have 80K in my super account. I roughly get two to three two and a half to three K more than what my employer employer puts in every year. However, the annual growth is not as much as other companies. I want to go to different super. I want to go to a different superannuation provider, maybe one of those industry super funds. However, I'm afraid I'll lose or not benefit as much because of the share prices 10 years ago, when I joined this current super provider was low compared to now. Similarly, if I join a new super fund provider, I have to start from today's share price. Please provide any suggestions you have. Great question. When I saw superannuation in the question, Kate, I was like, oh gosh, this is going to be a sensitive topic to talk about. We might not be able to answer this question, but it's actually a very, very simple question to answer because we talked about share prices. What's your gut feel on this one, Kate? I think if you're moving from the same fund or pretty much like high growth to high growth and it's maybe 90% shares to 90% shares and it's similar asset classes, it doesn't matter too much. But you may see a difference if you move from a different risk profile. Yeah. So, and the thing is here, right, is we talked about it at the start. Let's imagine if you have share prices that are say, uh, Apple is a really good example. Let's say it's a hundred dollars and it does a four for one stock split. It goes to $25. It doesn't matter because you're still investing in the same thing. It doesn't matter if the share price is a hundred or 25, it's still mm-hmm. Apple. Apples is apples. You know, it's the same thing. And it's the same with super. If you take your money and you put it in a new super provider, just because the share price or what you see in your account, which is often called the unit price, which Kate mm. referred to before, the unit price, just because the unit price is higher for one than it is for the other, that's not necessarily relevant. What's really relevant is how fast it grows. And if you're saying this is not growing fast enough or there's something wrong with my super fund, maybe it's charging higher fees, you don't need to worry about the unit price mm. because it is what it is. That's just really just like a yardstick. Mm. And then you just draw the line from there. And the unit price won't correlate with another fund as well because super funds just, they'll just start their unit price many decades ago at whatever. And another fund will use this completely different unit price to start with. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't look at which fund has a 
better unit price. Yeah. So one of the things you always get in shares, Kate, is, well, maybe I should buy Commonwealth Bank shares because I don't know what the share price is. I'm making this up. But it's, Commonwealth Bank shares are $80, but this tiny little company has a share price of $2. Mm. You know, that doesn't really matter. The share price itself doesn't matter. What matters is actually what you're investing in and how it grows over time. It's the yeah. same with super. Um, there's a lot to consider with superannuation. It's not just you know, this one swap for that one. You've got to really pay attention to the fees. And something that financial advisors would say to someone who comes into their office and asks this question is, do you really want to move if you need insurance from your super fund? Mm. If you have pre-existing medical conditions, if you have all of these different things, you've got to consider the insurance that's yeah. inside your super fund. Um, those are really important questions. And so that's why we always say read the PDS. But hey, if it's just an investing thing that you're thinking about, look for the best um, super funds you can find, research them, decide if they're appropriate for you or speak to someone. And then, and only then would you consider switching, Mm. Um, you know, don't just base it purely on, you know, unit prices or what have you, but the, you know, the industry funds are a good place to start. There's plenty of other funds out there that you can go and look for plenty of information available online. Kate, the last one I realized wasn't actually a question. It was actually a question (laughs) that you just had to me, which was, do we want to have a workbook for this Q and A episode? And that ladies and gentlemen is, um, Kate asking me, do we want to provide extra resources? So lately, Kate's been doing these amazing workbooks where she summarizes the episodes, puts links to the videos, puts links to other resources and tools and provides like key action points for you to focus on because we know that it's not just good enough to put the information out there. You actually want to put the steps in place. Mm. And I think the answer to this, Kate, is no. I don't think we're going to do a workbook for this, but we are going to provide show notes. So it's slightly different. You've got to get your workbook in your RASC account, which is free to get. Um, But the but you know, all the show notes are just available on the website. So um, is that, if I got that right or have I just gone completely off? You're like, no, stop, that stop. sounds, <laughs> sounds like you're uh, telling a true story there. And, um, yeah, cool. and yeah. And just, uh, just a reminder that the podcast at rask, rask.com.au email address is now open for action. So yep. uh, send us mm-hmm. your questions, your episode suggestions. We, we did stop doing the Q and A's for a while this year. Um, mm-hmm. So we are now, Back and doing them on a monthly basis. So please send your questions in and we'll, uh, we'll attack them on future episodes. Yeah. What I would love, like we can't answer everything, but we can answer most things. I think like a really good segment was that ask us anything, um, which has come from another one of our competitors at the time. But basically if you have something that you want to ask us, just ask us. And if it, you know what I really like Kate is I like the, the difficult questions about people's like money relationships. So if you mm. have something out there, if you're thinking like, you know, my partner thinks this about money. I think this, what's a way to solve that? I really like those psychology questions. So if you have those, I'm going to like bump those up the list and, uh, and see how we go. So um, if you have any questions to follow up from today's episode, or if you have any questions like that, the juicy ones, please send them through. We've got some announcements to make around the financial podcast coming. Um, it's coming down the pike. I can't lift the lid on them now. I love to lift the lid early, but um, we're yeah. going to wait. So just make sure you keep listening over the next few weeks and months because we have some exciting announcements to share with the community and all that sort of stuff. So Kate, as always, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for listening. Are you thinking about starting your wealth creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? Invest smart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz 
that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.